to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two great co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hello, Alex. Hello, Amber. Are we all hanging in there? We have been busy podcasters. We have, yes. We have another all-host show for you this week, which we've done a lot lately, but I think we're within our rights because we did just get back from the Burton Awards in Washington, D.C., and next week, we are going to have more guests than you even know what to do with. You wouldn't believe the big, beautiful <laughs> guests that we have lined up for you. So if you're getting sick of hearing just from us, certainly understandable. Uh, just sit tight for another week because uh, we're, we're pulling together some highlights from some very exciting interviews we conducted down there. Yeah, we had a lot of fun at those awards. For anybody who's not familiar, they honor the best in legal writing. Um, Supreme Court justices were in attendance. A lot of legal luminaries. We talked to a few of them. And it's going to be great to be able to share that with everybody. So that's next week. This week, we have a, a very interesting show. Uh, like I say, just some just doing the three-man weave on the host beat here, kicking around the news stories of the day. And Amber, if you want to start us off, let's uh, light this candle. Look, whenever we do an all-host show, if there's something employment to be talked about, I snap that right up. Um, yeah. I, I love my employment authority team and the rest of our newsroom that cover these big developments. And we have an interesting one to get to. It's a jury verdict that we're going to discuss today. On Monday, a New Jersey federal jury sided with a white former regional director for Starbucks who alleged that she was fired after the arrest of two black men sparked public outrage. The woman was awarded $25.6 million in damages on her claims that Starbucks was basically looking for a sacrificial lamb to end a public relations crisis. Okay, that's an interesting one indeed. Let's get into the facts, though. What exactly happened in this incident? I feel like this rings a bell. I feel like I remember it. I was going to say that too, Haley. I think a lot of our listeners will have their brain tickled here and be placing this with the fervor at the time, but it's been several years. So back in 2018, two black men were arrested at a Starbucks in Philadelphia after refusing to leave a table. They were waiting for an acquaintance to join them for a business meeting, and a store manager had asked them to leave because they didn't order anything. The Starbucks employee called the cops when they refused to leave, and this all happened within minutes of their arrival. A video of their arrest went viral. It sparked protests and prompted Starbucks to issue an apology. In filings of this case itself, Starbucks called the steps that it took in the wake of this event the, quote, largest corporate response in American history. So that leads us to Shannon Phillips. She was fired after she was asked to suspend a white district manager under her command. Amid the claims that non-white salaried managers were paid less than white salaried managers, and, and this was sort of a snowball effect based out of these arrests and a look at the racial practices at Starbucks. Phillips pushed back on that suspension, and ultimately she was fired. Starbucks reached an undisclosed settlement with the men who were actually arrested and also closed more than 8,000 of its U.S. retail locations and corporate offices for one day so that 175,000 employees could receive racial bias training. So this was a very big deal at the time. And that brings us up to speed on the actual litigation and the trial that we're talking about here. You mentioned uh, up top that Phillips considered herself a sacrificial lamb. What was actually being alleged in the suit? Phillips said she was fired because she was white and was in a position of authority since she oversaw around 100 Starbucks locations in the greater Philly area. She brought racial bias claims against Starbucks under both state and federal law. At trial, 
Phillips argued that she was, to use that phrase again, because that's what the lawyer said, that she was a sacrificial lamb used by Starbucks to show that it was taking action and to sort of calm the outrage it was facing over the arrests. Phillips' attorney had argued several things, um, but basically said that when they went looking for someone to fire, they were not going to pick a Black employee because it, quote, would have blown up in their faces. Starbucks, on the other hand, had argued that she was fired so they could install a manager with a track record of showing strength and resolution during a crisis. And they pointed out that the person that replaced her was also a white manager. It's the old reverse racism. It's not just something your aunt posts about on Facebook. It's uh, at the root of very serious wrongful termination lawsuits. Sounds like the jury wasn't really buying the Starbucks defense, though. They absolutely weren't. They ended up awarding, like I said, $25.6 million to this white manager. So clearly, they were having none of this. And there are actually some some interesting takeaways from this one. I mean, I know it's sort of outsized circumstances that there was a big public set of arrests and a lot of, you know, attention from the media, just the public at large. That seems like maybe it can't happen other places. But I think there's some takeaways for just everyday employers as well. Ann Cullen, who's one of our senior discrimination reporters on the Employment Authority team, reached out to attorneys to discuss this case. And they all said it exemplifies the risks of making hurried personnel decisions and sort of overvaluing those optics because they can really get you in trouble on the back end. So several attorneys Ann talked to said the jury was clearly swayed by Phillips's argument that Starbucks punished her and pushed her out the door basically for the sake of its image. This is a warning for employers that they can't start cutting corners just because they're in the middle of a PR scandal. Mark Bernstein, who's a management side partner at Paul Hastings, said this. The Starbucks case highlights how, in responding to public criticism over alleged racist incidents, companies really need to be cautious of the risk of reverse discrimination claims. It's a reminder for companies to be careful of hasty decisions. Well, I want to turn now to a big settlement involving J.P. Morgan Chase. So this week, the bank agreed to pay $290 million to Jeffrey Epstein abuse survivors to settle their class action accusing the bank of knowingly assisting him with his sex trafficking operation. So J.P. Morgan Chase is actually the second financial institution to settle these sorts of allegations. Deutsche Bank also agreed to pay $75 million in a similar suit just a few weeks ago. These settlements are obviously a really big win for the survivors, but it's also a pretty interesting look into compliance and ethics and how all of this can can shake out at massive banks like this. Yeah, that really is interesting how this plays in these massive institutions. But what exactly are the survivors alleging that the banks were doing and how they were involved? Chase was Epstein's main financial institution from 1998 to 2013. And Epstein's survivors say the bank allowed him to withdraw enormous amounts of cash at a moment's notice and then use that cash to finance his various crimes. According to their suit, Chase compliance officers did flag Epstein as a suspicious client and as early as 2002. But more senior managers at the bank appeared to have overruled those concerns and allowed him to keep keep banking with them. In 2006, Epstein was indicted on a sex charge and declared a high-risk bank client. In 2008, he was convicted as a sex offender. Still, the bank worked with him until 2013. 
One thing I'll also note is the survivors won certification of their class on Friday, and that includes all women who were sexually abused or trafficked by Epstein during the time that he had accounts with the bank. So the timing of this is, you know, fairly self-explanatory. You get that class certification. That's a pretty big win in and of itself for the survivors. And it might goose your efforts to uh, pay out, uh, which appears to have happened here. What kind of defenses was Chase mounting during the course of these filings here? I mean, you laid out the timeline quite well about like his various entanglements with the law, which led the bank to declare him a high-risk client, which probably the, the tamest of things that can happen to you after you have a sex charge on your record. But what exactly were they saying in terms of their role in this? Yeah, Chase really maintains that it did not know exactly what Epstein was getting up to. Although it has acknowledged that, in hindsight, working with him was a mistake that it regrets. Here's a statement from earlier this week. We all now understand that Epstein's behavior was monstrous, and we believe this settlement is in the best interest of all parties, especially the survivors who suffered unimaginable abuse at the hands of this man. And another interesting thing here with what's going on on the Chase end of things is Chase has actually sued one of its former executives, and that's a man named James Staley, who is a close friend of Epstein's. So the bank wants Staley to be the one who's liable for any legal damages that it faces. Unsurprisingly, Staley says he had no idea what Epstein was up to either, so he shouldn't be the one to foot that bill. But that's still working itself out. You mentioned in the beginning of this that there was a lot from a compliance standpoint and also from an ethics perspective. Let's get into some of that. What, what have we learned through the settlement about those efforts at these big banks? One of the attorneys for the victims put it pretty well. She called these settlements with both of the banks life-changing and historic for the survivors, obviously. But most notably, she said they signal that financial institutions have an important role to play in spotting and shutting down sex trafficking. Law360 reporter Sue Reisinger also talked with some experts about all of this. And one compliance and ethics consultant described the settlement as stunning. That expert, his name is Thomas Fox, said the thing that struck him the most was that the compliance department at Chase actually did their job in this case and, you know, flagged those things and brought it to senior management, but they were apparently overridden. And the settlement demonstrates that there's a huge amount of reputational damage that banks and other businesses can face after working with someone with such red flags. Another big thing to watch going forward is whether any internal players at Chase, including maybe Staley, but maybe other executives who may have had a role in allowing him to keep working with the bank, will face any penalties or repercussions. Well, friends, pardon me as I turn the days since Donald Trump was indicted meter back to zero because the former president has been indicted once again. This time, we're looking at a federal case in Florida, which alleges that Trump took scores of sensitive government documents from the White House to his Mar-a-Lago residence when he left office. This, according to the indictment, violates the Espionage Act, and there are also counts about 
obstruction of justice pertaining to Trump's efforts to hide those files from a grand jury subpoena. By now, I'm sure everyone has seen uh, the, the photos from what is a historic federal indictment, it's a 37 count indictment, the photos of these boxes stacked up all around Mar-a-Lago, in the basement, in the bathroom. I'm personally a huge fan of the boxes arranged on that small proscenium stage, like they put on a Christmas play or something. I wanted to use this space of the show here. Again, I know people are pretty caught up on this. I want to walk through the particulars of this indictment, but also we've had a lot of really good reporting on some kind of B-side storylines to keep an eye on here, which I think are quite fascinating. I think, like you said, Alex, a lot of people have obviously heard about this development, but let's get into sort of the legal particulars of what's in the indictment. Run us through that. Yeah, where the case really begins is shortly after Trump left office in January of 2021, the National Archives and Records Administration noticed that some files that it was supposed to have were missing, and they requested for Trump to return a number of those documents, and he eventually acquiesced to that. He handed over about 15 boxes of documents to that agency, but the NARA wasn't quite satisfied with that, and they basically flagged this matter to the DOJ which then began a grand jury investigation into Trump's handling of these secret documents. I think when this got on the public's radar was last August. You probably remember news of the DOJ raiding Mar-a-Lago to seize more documents. And that kind of clued everybody in to the fact that Trump was under investigation for illegally holding these documents, allegedly. And what you might also remember is that his first basic line of defense when that raid happened was that he, to, to proclaim that he had declassified them upon leaving from office. Now, the indictment that came last week is from a special prosecutor named Jack Smith, and it alleges that Trump not only illegally retained these sensitive documents, but also that while he did turn over some documents to investigators, he directed his personal aide, a man named Walt Nauta, to secretly move more than 60 boxes from the Mar-a-Lago storage room into Trump's personal residence, which, as I said, gives rise to the obstruction charges, not just the espionage charges. Yeah, what's the deal with Walt Nada? He was referred to in the documents as Trump's body man. What does that mean? Well, I suspect the entire country is about to learn quite a bit uh, about Walt Nada. And a good place to start, if you're curious, one of our senior white-collar reporters, Philip Vance, had a really great story breaking down what is at stake for Nauta, who had a pretty low profile in the Trump orbit. He began as a, he had a, a job in the White House cafeteria, and he basically rose to become Trump's personal valet before following him to Mar-a-Lago as a personal aide or a body man. And now he is a co-defendant for allegedly helping Trump store and conceal these disputed documents, and he faces decades in prison if he's convicted. That's uh, the American dream, is yeah, it not? Right, definitely. You uh, really rise through the ranks and then one day get indicted alongside your high-profile boss. It's definitely a, a version of the American dream in the Trump <laughs> era, as we've seen it happen. A version of that story happened quite a lot. But the thing that Philip wrote about was as the case draws on and, and trial gets closer, a lot of experts who follow stuff like this said they expect the government to keep the pressure on NADA to flip and testify against Trump, which could be a goldmine for them if, it's, if what's alleged in the documents is true and that he is instrumental to this scheme to hide these documents. 
And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's happened before. I think most people remember that Trump's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, who facilitated the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels, which led to a, a New York indictment, which we talked about on the show, Cohen flipped, and he is now cooperating with the Manhattan DA's case on that matter. We've also discussed in the past former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg. He testified against the company in a, in a tax case, though he did not implicate Trump himself, but he did flip and cooperate with government prosecutors. For now, Trump's uh, Save America PAC has been footing NADA's legal bills, so he seems to be in lockstep with Trump for now. But according to Phillips reporting, and, and I've seen it elsewhere as well, that will be a dynamic worth watching to see if the feds really put the screws to him and see if they can flip him. Not to overload this segment with Trump associates and attorneys, but <laughs> there is another Trump attorney in the case that I think we do need to talk about for a beat. Yes, I feel like every time someone in the orbit, especially in Trump's like legal team orbit, gets in trouble for something or gets or gets implicated in something, you got to be like a new weird Trump lawyer guy just dropped. <laughs> Let's learn all about him or her. Want to shout out the work again of pro se legend Andrew Strickler wrote a pretty fascinating undercurrent that focuses on the extent to which the information in the indictment relies on testimony given by one of Trump's attorneys, who is a former federal prosecutor named M. Evan Corcoran. So Trump put Corcoran, he was hired specifically to respond to the government's document requests, which the indictment says were woefully incomplete. Trump would just hand over a few boxes here and there, but was sitting on a lot more. Now, the experts said that the facts of this indictment are quite strong, but that relying on information from a current member of Trump's legal team could possibly create some headaches for the government when they go to trial. And as you might be guessing here, that's because of the pesky matter of attorney-client privilege. Now, during the grand jury investigation, a Washington judge ruled that the so-called crime-fraud exception to attorney-client privilege applies here, which is the idea that you don't have to keep something privileged if your client is engaged in crime or fraud. So this judge ruled that that exception applies, and that's why Corcoran was able to testify and basically just give the feds all this information. So Andrew Strickler, he spoke with lawyers who said that Trump's team is very likely to fight that decision about the exception, and if successful, it could leave at least the obstruction charges on a little bit of shaky ground, even though they appear pretty strong sort of on their own. Now, Corcoran's testimony was a boon because he happened to have recorded conversations with Trump. And you've probably seen this floating around in the press. This is um, on these recordings. Trump is heard saying or suggesting that it would be better if, quote, we didn't respond at all to the documents probe and just pretending as though there are no documents in his possession. Later on the recording, Trump is heard praising a Hillary Clinton lawyer who basically took the blame for deleting all emails from the former candidate's personal server. We all remember that saga. But experts that Andrew talked to said that this does open Corcoran up for attacks on his credibility from Trump attorneys if he does take the stand, because they can argue that Corcoran clearly seemed to think that Trump was up to no good by trying to get him on tape saying this stuff, but that he made the kind of ethically dubious decision to continue representing him. He's still on the legal team to this day. So you can, if you look far enough ahead, you can see how he might expose himself to some pretty pointed questions from opposing counsel if it comes to that. So those are just a few things to uh, 
to look out for here. We're in early days. The, the indictment just came down last week, and I'm, I'm sure that we will keep you abreast of any noteworthy developments. But if the topic of the Trump indictments come up at your next gathering or whatever, you can talk a little bit about Nada and Corcoran, and people will know that you are very savvy and well-informed, and you can tell them you heard it from Pro Se. So stay tuned. I think that just about wraps us up for today. But Alex, I know you had one last thing you wanted to share. Yeah, you know, we've there have been discussions in the past about having a segment or maybe a special series on, we did the movie club. We've talked about having Pro Se Book Club. Which I've always been a fan of that idea because we, um, people might remember several years ago at the start of the pandemic, I had the chance to interview Scott Turow. Yeah. And I love talking about legal books. It was so much fun. Well, I don't know if we'll ever formalize that idea because... Lord knows we can kick the can down the road with the best of them. Uh, but, <laughs> but I did want to use this space here to shout out a book I recently finished. It is called The Wager by David Gran. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he also wrote the book Killers of the Flower Moon, which is getting, uh. it's getting the Scorsese treatment. I wanted to shout it out. Uh, it's a very good book and it's very popular. I mean, I'm not, this is by no means a deep cut. A lot of people have read it. It deals with a, uh, the wreck of a British warship in the 1700s and the conflicting reports from the survivors of that wreck who were marooned on an island off the coast of uh, Chile about what happened on the island and there was like allegations of a mutiny against the captain and all this other stuff and again this is from like 300 years ago and the book ends with like a pretty interesting look at the legal system in London at the time which is basically it carried a lot of valuable lessons for me and my crippling legal reporter brain about evidence retention, because basically Ooh. the only evidence that gets admitted in a, in a proceeding like this are the logs kept by the ship's officers and the people on the ship, which is what the, the book is being retold through that. So, and it's sort of, you know, and, and Grant is a journalist, he writes for the New Yorker. So he writes history in like a very journalistic way and not such a stuffy historian way. And so if that sounds interesting to you, very cool. It's a book about dudes rocking and doing various. <laughs> it cool sounds things. like I love old this. timey yellow jackets. It kind of does. Yeah. I love this description, Alex. I already immediately have the friend in mind that I need to now go tell about this book. So yeah, very cool. Check it out. The Wager, David Graham. So there you go. That's great. Thanks for bringing that to our attention, Alex. Really appreciate it. Sure. Glad to. And Haley, thanks for being with me as always. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our contributing reporters, Philip Bance, Andrew Strickler, George Wolston, Ann Cullen, Elliot Weld, and Sue Reisinger. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd really love it if you left us a written review, five stars, on any podcast platform where you're listening, because that really helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about the things we've talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.